Welcome to Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian company, Euros Hartleys. This is a podcast series where we take time out to get to know the story behind the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies. We look back at some of the moments in their life and career that shaped the journey to being the leader they are today and provide you with some real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. So get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here is your Finding the Front host, Tim Banfield. Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. As you know, Euros Hartley's is a proudly Western Australian financial services company. We're extremely honoured that our podcast continues to grow, and thanks a lot to everyone who has shared it with family, friends, work colleagues, and the like. We really do appreciate the thought. We continue to receive fantastic feedback from all parts of Australia, which is very humbling. So thanks a lot for that too. It's hard to believe that this episode is number 20, and we reflect on the amazing leaders we have had such a valuable opportunity to engage with in conversation so many takeaways in business and in life in each one of them. And this, our episode 20, is absolutely no different. Our guest in this episode is the very high achiever, Mr. David Flanagan. David has had a 25-year career in the mining and mineral exploration industry. He is well known as the founding managing director of Atlas Iron, who grew the company from an explorer with one employee to a company with a value of some $3 billion at its peak. David, over his career, has achieved many awards throughout his life, culminating in being named Western Australian of the Year in 2014 and being admitted in 2018 as a general member to the Order of Australia for significant service to the mining sector through a range of roles, to higher education, to philanthropy and to the community. David has so much to share, and his insights are told with passion, emotion, and deep understanding. We cover iron ore, mining, critical minerals, space, and WA's leading resource sector, and the opportunity set for WA as a whole. This is a wide-ranging and seriously engaging conversation. So, without further ado, it gives me enormous pleasure to introduce to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front, Mr. David Flanagan. David, welcome to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. Yes. Thanks so much for taking the time out to join us. Mate, thanks for having me. <laughs> Fantastic. Look, well, David, there's so much to talk about over what has been an incredibly interesting and successful life and career so far, and I think that goes without saying. And I'm really excited about having you here. Really been looking forward to it. So thanks for squeezing us in, as I say. Before I kick off, I just wanted to give our legendary listeners who are growing a bit of background on your achievements. So it provides some real context into the conversation as we go forward because there's so much to cover. So just bear with me. First and foremost. Oh, you're not going to read the list, are you? I'm going to go close. <laughs> I'm going to go close, but I want to start on a personal front. Yeah, okay. First and foremost. You are a husband to your wife, Sarah, and a dad, and I know that's very dear to you and incredibly important, and I know that comes as the first and foremost part of your life, but as your bio states, you've got a bit done. I've been busy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yep. At the tender age of, uh, you, you've, you've just tipped over the half century? Yep, 50. Congratulations. Thanks. So bear with me, ladies and gentlemen. 
David is a geologist with more than 25 years experience in mining and mineral exploration. He was the founding managing director of Atlas Iron. And during his tenure at Atlas, he oversaw a growth from a junior explorer to an ASX top 50 company and an operator of three iron ore mines. It doesn't stop there. He's been recognised for his leadership through many awards, including the Governor's Award for Giving in 2011, the Eisenhower Fellowship in 2013, Western Australian of the Year in 2014, and a member of the Order of Australia in 2018. He's held the role of Chancellor at Murdoch University and is currently the Executive Chairman of Battery Minerals, Non-Executive Director of Macca Limited, Independent Non-Executive Chair of Red Dirt Metals and Independent Non-Executive Chair of a very interesting association or organisation called the Australian Remote Operations for Space and Earth. He's also the Ambassador for the Western Australian Parks Foundation, Patron of the Many Rivers Opportunities, Calparan and the Fathering Project. Holy cow. And I haven't covered them all. So I did cut a little bit out, but we'll get to that as we get through it. So with Finding the Front, David, one of the purposes of this podcast is to take some time out to learn about the guests that we have on the show and their upbringing, what shaped them, what influenced them. In doing some research, I noted that you grew up in the great Western Australian coastal city of Bunbury. Yep. Great place. Fantastic. How did you find growing up in Bunbury? I mean, what an opportunity. Oh, it's awesome. Yep. You know, we pretty much everyone, you know, in half the cities along a coastal strip. So you're always exposed to the ocean, always in the water, out there fishing, playing sports, surfing, whatever. It was awesome. And growing up, so you were born in Bunbury? Yep. And your folks were from Bunbury? Yes, but but no. So um, dad was born in Bunbury in the same hospital where I was at St. John of God. My mum was born in Germany. She was a displaced person post the Second World War when, when Germany invaded Poland. They moved across into another part of Germany during the war. She was born there. Wow. And did she fit straight into society in, in Bunbury or did she – what a was bit, her journey? A bit of this gets onto the microfinance type stuff. So they, they actually came here in 19, early 1950s, 54 I think it was. Right. And it, no, it wasn't straightforward. As a Polish post-war immigrant, it wasn't completely simple. No. They lived in tents, the Nissan huts sent out to build railway lines, and my grandfather was a tailor. And during that process, someone lent him enough money to buy a sewing machine. And it's very cool through lots of complex stories. I've ended up being able to find the sewing machine and it sits in my office. It's pretty cool. You're kidding. So your grandfather came out to Australia with your mum? Uh, Yep, and his wife and two other boys. Right, okay. And what was the migration across to Perth or to Western Australia? Via Italy and then up to Northam and then down to Bunbury. Is that right? And it was quite a long process in all of that. Yes, yes. And did they settle in in the end? Yeah, they did. Yeah. They did. And, and with that sewing machine, he built them a life. He put them all through school and paid off a family home. And, and then, you know, 45, 50 years later, he went on his first holiday. <laughs> That's kind of what <laughs> they did. They paid cash for everything. You yes, know? yeah. Tell me, as a side point, how did you find the sewing machine? Well, accidentally, it got put out on a road verge for a council pickup. Wow. And um, we were, at Atlas at the time, we were doing some fairly hefty M&A deals, and we had some, <laughs> we had some quite capable lawyers working in and around the business on yes. all sorts of things. And through them, I got some advice on how to go about finding it. 
and I found it and then how to go about getting it back. And I did. And, and ultimately, this managing partner from Blake Dawson, his advice to me was, David, look, we can do all manner of things, but it's really just going to be the power of your personality that's going to get that sewing machine back <laughs> from that guy who's got it. And eventually I got it back. Yeah. <laughs> So that is just like that is a real family heirloom. It is, and yeah. it's I'm very proud of it. Oh, what a great story! And so there's yourself, and you've got a brother. Yeah, Nick. Yeah, he's now living in Newcastle with Chloe and and the kids. Yeah, great. Um, Finn and Ginger. No, I actually just came back from a surf trip with Nick to Sumatra last weekend. So um, I'm still close with Nick, and he's he's doing great. I know surfing's a passion of yours, and. I couldn't help but think growing up in Bunbury would have helped facilitate that. Yeah, actually Bunbury is sort of underestimated. It it actually can have a really good surf. And they've fenced off a large part of the harbour now. You can't really get in there. But in and around a lot of those groins, there's some really good surf on the right day. Yes. And did you spend a lot of time surfing? Yeah, like we were in nippers and then out there surfing and in the local surf club. And the... uh, Indiana board riders out there having competitions with those and then the school we were doing surf competitions and and then come the age of 17 I decided to leave and go live in Kalgoorlie so it, it wasn't <laughs> it's not a lot of surf in Kalgoorlie no. but it was yeah like I loved it I still love surfing. Tell me about Bunbury in terms of your schooling do you enjoy it? So I went to um, the Catholic school yeah I did enjoy school I went through with a really good year group we finished school and it was one of those year groups where if there was a party, everyone from the year group would go to the party yeah. and everyone all got on really well. It's co-ed Catholic school. You know, it's uh, you know a bit like most of the Catholic schools around the place. You know, there's with, with the priest, you know, there's a bit of a history there, but it was still good for me. Yeah. I suppose when we look at your schooling and one of the questions we like to ask on the show is, did you really know what you wanted to do? When you look at what your mum and dad were doing, what did your dad do for, for a living and, and what did your mum do? And then look at your schooling and then did you actually know what you wanted to do when you left school? It's a good question. So dad was at that stage, most of the time he was in real estate. Yes. And prior to that he was in, had the Holden dealership with his dad. Um, my mum was uh, working at, at the coffee shop at EDCU in Bunbury there. Right. So at 15, uh, we sort of had to decide on what we were going to do for, for work experience. Right, And I had a mate, Jeff Davies, his dad, Chris Davies, was heading exploration for mineral sands for cable sands. Okay. And look, I thought it would be a good idea to go out with those guys. They were going to go and do mineral exploration work experience. And I loved it. Yes. And just around about that time, the School of Mines ran this thing called Focus on Mining, where they would come to a school and introduce this grant prospect where you could go for a week to Kalgoorlie as a 15, 16-year-old and get a look at the School of Mines and get a look at mines and, and sort of have a look at processing plants and exploration about how it's actually done. Yes. And I went on that and it was just, it blew, I loved it. I just thought it was fantastic and very grateful for the opportunity to have a look at Kalgoorlie. It was a wonderful place. And I pretty much decided then that I was going to become a geologist. Right. But knowing that I might find out the geology is not for me, but that I would choose it and I would stick with it until I found something that I liked better. Yes, okay. So I I thought, well, the first thing I looked at was geology and I loved it. Does that mean that if I look at something else, I'll love that and want to do that as well? But at least for now, I'll stick with geology. And that's what I did. And that's at the age of 15. Yep. You ended up a couple of years later graduating with enough marks to get into Bachelor of Science. Yep. Just. Just. (laughs) 
<laughs> just, <laughs> just, just. Well, you know, as, as they say, just get enough to get by. That's it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> so off you went up to Cal. Tell us a little bit about the School of Mines. Now, we've had the opportunity through Finding the Front to to have a chat to some of your past people that have been through the School of Mines, like Ken Brinston, who I know you work closely with, Bill Beamant, Rally Finlayson. We talked about it a bit earlier. It's been quite a celebrated pathway. Can you give us your insights into the School of Mines and, and what it's been able to provide for you? Yeah, so I've thought about this a lot because we think about it, you know, and, and other people have asked these types of questions. So, for example, say Ken was literally living in the room next door to me in our accommodation block there in Moore Hall. Like Ian Junk, the famous Ian Junk who yes. revolutionised nickel mining in Cambelda. He was our um, warden. He was, the, he was the guy who was trying to keep us under control. So, <laughs> so, so the first and foremost, you, you create these friendships with people yeah. who then later on you realise that there's, there's value in the trust that you have between those people. So you seek them out for advice. You engage with them on opportunities. You sort of partner on developing projects. And a lot of those School of Minds guys, because they have known each other for four years before they actually hit the corporate world, the relationships are deep. Yes. And whilst you're at the School of Minds, you've actually all got to work collectively to solve problems all the time. So it's very team-oriented. It, the whole School of Minds is. You might not realise it, but there is a, like looking at it from the outside, driving down the main street of Kalgoorlie, but there is a very strong culture, cohesion within the students at the School of Minds. And it's not just about, you know, working our way through a project assignment or dealing with a prac in a lab. There's all sorts of other social activities which happens at the School of Mines, like the local rugby team. And, the, and our dean, Odwin Jones, was amazing. There's lots of relationship building there which goes on to help do other things. Not to mention, while this is all happening, you're all working in a mine. Right. And pretty much everyone was working in a mine or a local bar the whole way through, and all of that counts. After the School of Mines, so you came out of there with a Bachelor of Science. That got you into starting a, a career path. Now, did you have any ambition around where that career path was going to go? But a bit like doing geology, you said, right, well, let's just start. I'm going to learn everything I can, underground and open pit. Was that the desire? Yes, it was. It was, but it kind of evolved that way. So part of me had this sort of almost like a bit of a secret desire to one day sort of run a company if yes. I had a chance. And that if there were things that decisions I could make which would help take me down that route, I subconsciously and consciously would sort of do it. Yes. So I would, you know, as a young guy, I ended up running a fairly large exploration team in West Africa. Now that gave me an advantage when I came back here because I'd run a large program as a young guy and I'd proven, you know, so I sort of did try and diversify and push myself into roles where I could stretch myself. Yes. You know, BHP wouldn't, and Western Mining wouldn't employ me because I didn't have the marks when I got out of university. But So I had to, to compete I just had to build that broad experience, and I did. Initially, I loved working underground, and I thought that's all I was ever going to do. I just loved it. Yeah. I know when you look at that sort of period of time, we're talking now through 1993 to roughly just before you started with Atlas in 04. If you went through that period, you've got coffee partners, which took you through to Indonesia and Africa. Yep. You've got... Was, that was RSG back then, and that was right. all around that BREX time. Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. And I'd just like to expand on that a little bit. And also, you know, what you found informative, but also your experience towards getting to that corporate goal within Kalgoorlie in the open pit and underground. I know you loved underground, but how'd the open pit start? 
Maybe what? if we start with the yeah, Indonesian. Yeah, so, so, yeah, so I was I was working underground at Mount Charlotte, and it was a one gram more body, and the gold price was in the three hundreds. And they were just doing cutback after cutback, and I was only getting like a, a day or two a week. And this is while I was studying. Right. So I was trying to get more work as a geologist while I was studying, even though I hadn't qualified yet. Yep. And Jeff Stokes gave me a go out at Mount Pleasant, north of Kalgoorlie. You know, this is the famous Jeff Stokes. He's an amazing guy. And um, I got to work out there in pure exploration. And I then became intoxicated in that. And it was at a time when technology was really just starting to take off. And I felt like I was a, a modern day prospector. I had this feeling where I had all this technology and these amazing mentors and I got it like Andy Viner and, and Rick Yates and I got a chance to go out there and test theories. Yes. You come up with a theory that there's a gold deposit over there and you go and test it yep. and you get a result and then you do it again and you keep learning and sometimes you find things and it was wonderful. And whilst we were out there, I was working around Orabanda, Don Hancock, you know, all those sorts of guys, the stories, Billy Grierson got shot out there at yes. the cricket pitch. There was lots of interesting stuff happening. And then what about the overseas, the international experience? So after working with Jeff, I then went to work in the super pit in yep. like a hardcore production role. And then I came back to resource service group with Andy and Rick. And I really wanted an overseas role. I wanted to travel. That was one of the things I wanted to do with my life. And I'd met Sarah at this stage. She was into traveling and we decided to have a go. Yes. I got a job in Indonesia. I was starting a gold mine there at Rawas. As I was seconded in there by a resource service group, Julian Barnes and Rick, and it was a good job but a tough mine in an amazing volcanic landscape. You could sit on the top of this pit edge and look down the strike of the Trans-Sumatran Fault and see active volcanoes. So the, the gold deposit I was on was formed as part of that volcanic system wow. a couple of hundred million years ago. It's amazing. Then... I went from there back to Cal, packed up and went to West Africa. Tell me the BREEX part. Yep. Could you just give us a bit of an insight into that? Maybe not everyone realises this, but at around about that time, there was an apparent gold discovery in Indonesia, which was reported as being possibly the largest gold deposit ever found in the history of mankind. This is the same movie that Matthew McConaughey yeah, made yeah, 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 called yeah, yeah. Gold. Yep, yep. yep. And ultimately there was no gold there. Right. And one of the guys at RSG was involved in the audit, which discovered that there was no gold there. <laughs> so, <laughs> gosh. Oh, Colin Jones. Yeah, amazing time, really. Oh, yeah. yeah. And tell us about Africa. So Africa is everything a young geologist would ever want. It was hardship. It was learning the local language. It was dealing with health issues. I, I came down with cerebral malaria on my ninth day in country. My inner organs swelled up to the point of bursting and massive problems with pain. There was like all sorts of risks. They tried to get me out of the country because of the complications. Yes. And the airline wouldn't fly me because I was a death risk. Oh, it things, was, things were getting it grim. Was, it was, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh about it now. It was pretty uncomfortable Have at the time. Have you had any repercussions? No, no. If there's any good things about that type of falciparium cerebral malaria is that it's non-recurring. Once you get rid of it, it doesn't come back. Right. But um, yeah, we found so much gold at Bogosu. And really all we had to do was to encourage the locals to have a crack. Like yes. our, we had a team of local geologists who were amazing. We had these drill rigs that were amazing. And literally I started a competition between the drill rigs on drill meters and safety and reliability. And each day we would write down on the board the name of the drill rig. And each team that was associated with that drill rig 
you know, saw absolute pride in being the leading drill crew. Yeah. And suddenly drill meters doubled and tripled and quadrupled. Yeah. And discoveries doubled and tripled and quadrupled. And the geos were out finding targets. And we cut a line through this weeded undergrowth and then intersected a banana plantation. And we found like a $150 million gold ore body only a couple of kilometers from the plant. That's why gold can be just so amazing. It can have such a small footprint and be such enormously valuable. And there was probably 50,000 people who were directly and indirectly employed by that mine who went from having three months worth of prospects to having years worth of prospects. Yeah. And it was just so rewarding. We had a lot of fun. There was also a lot of illegal miners there. Right. And we had to work with them. Every now and then it got a little bit tense. Yeah. There was one day there where there was a lot of rain during wet season and it had flooded our mine and we weren't too worried about it because we were going to pump it out later on. It was quite a shallow pit. But the overflow water had flowed into what was a bit of an illegal mine, one of these the illegal miners, the Gallum say. And I didn't know this. And I was wandering around in the bush one day by myself. I came around the corner and there was about 150 of these guys standing around with nothing to do because their mine had flooded. Yes. And they couldn't get down to the bottom of it because it was, you know, they had these tiny little, it was like biblical type stuff. You know, the people with a bucket down the bottom of a hole, five metres down, 10 metres down, they'd carry the bucket up and then they were refining it, pumping all sorts of mercury into the stuff. Anyway, I, I turned up, I came around the corner and all these guys started surrounding me <laughs> and blaming me for their mine flooding. And in a way, our mine did flood their mine, but we weren't responsible for dewatering their mine because no. they were stealing gold from the corporate. Yes. And they weren't real local miners. They'd come from all over Africa to pinch gold off the mining company. Anyway, so I was standing there and these guys all started like jostling me. But there must have been three or four deep all around me. And they were all fairly rough blokes. And it started to get physical. And there was this sort of semi-craziness that started to build in the group. And no one knew where I was. It was no. a Saturday. There was no, no trucks or anything around. And I started to get a bit sort of scared. Like, where was this going to go? Because they had actually beheaded a geologist there a few years prior. It's so pretty loose. I can understand so why so you're starting this, to get a bit scared. Getting a bit, I'm getting a bit scared. <laughs> oh, God. I wasn't even going to talk about this. Anyway, while this was happening, I was thinking, well, what can I say? How can I, how, how can I defuse this situation? Yeah. So I, my, my ute was about... 100 metres away, there was no way I could make a run for it. And I, I said to one of them, do you believe in Jesus? And this guy said to me, yes, of course I believe in Jesus. <laughs> of course. He is the one true God. I said, well, that's fantastic. Well, you know that rain comes from the sky and it's come from Jesus. It's come from God. And he says, yes, of course I know that. I said, so how do you think I can control whether your mind's flooded or not? It's not my problem. God did it. It was an act of God. Anyway, this guy, this guy paused. And the other guy standing around him said, don't listen to him. The Bruni, the white guy, he's just trying to confuse you. It's his fault. He said, and he says, no, don't you challenge my faith in Jesus and God and my beliefs. And while these guys were arguing about whether the rain was an act of God or not, I got out of there. You snuck away. I, I jumped in the car <laughs> and I was gone. Oh, and I, I don't know, they, those guys stuck around and debated. And that was, and there was a, a very strong Christian faith down there. And we used to engage with the religious elements of our community quite a bit. 
and there was quite a bit of debate between interpretations of the Bible, and I never thought that it would get me out of a, a jam, but it did that day. <laughs> sure, a lucky one, yeah. a lucky escape. Yeah. Tell me, you're at this point, you and Sarah are together. Yep. And you're flying in and out of Africa. So I was doing three month stint, Sarah. This is how resourceful Sarah is. I got an offer to go and work at GenCore at the uh, at the gold mine. And within two weeks, Sarah had got herself an offer to go work in a Guernsey private hospital as a dietitian. So she was in Guernsey working as a dietitian before I got on the ground in Ghana. (laughs) She's just super capable. She's amazing. I was flying in and out of London. Right. And and then, and and that's how we did that for a while. And what were the stints? What were the swings? Three months on, three weeks off. So they're long, long stints. Look, it, it was, yeah. That was one of the things that was quite common in the industry, particularly for geologists. Yes. You would often go to the field and stay with the drilling program until it was done and then return. Right. You'd wash your clothes in a bucket. You do your skids on the Flying Doctor radio. We didn't have sat phones, you know, but things have moved on a lot. One of the final roles I just wanted to talk about was your role as exploration manager with Gin Dalby yep. Metals. Now, that was post-London. Yep. Post-Africa, post-Indonesia, and you now you're starting to get into more senior roles back here in Western Australia. Talk to me about Jindalby in that role. I note that at that point, Jindalby, towards the end of your time, which we're talking about, you know, you were there from 99 to 2004, they identified Carrara, 200 kilometres east of Geraldton. Yep. And your role in that and just how that sort of set you up in terms of Carrara being magnetite iron ore project and then thus going into Atlas. And then whether it had any linkage in there. Yeah, no, completely connected. So very important people in this part, Andy Viner, David McSweeney, Darren Gordon in there, Keith McKay. So really good people in there. We were running a gold mine that was just like torture. Right. We hit this one section of the ore body vertically where we – we ended up with half the grade, four times the water inflow, three times the operating cost. Recoveries went down and it was just hell. It was mining hell. Yep. And we had all sorts of problems. We ended up just having putting a pause on payments there at one stage, had a conversation with Len Buckridge and Len said, what do you want? We wanted an extra 60 days or 90 days and he gave it to us and we paid him back and it all it was an amazing experience and what you can achieve when everyone comes together. Yes. And we then got the extra gold. The gold was there. We found it in another part. We found a couple of other deposits and then we started to wind down the gold mine. And around about this time, Mount Gibson was being developed to the south with the Brian Johnson, you know, the guy who worked with Lang Hancock for years. And I'll be completely honest, at this stage I was the Andy had left to start Jackson Gold. I was working for Dave McSweeney. And Dave is, a, is an exceptional managing director and a leader. He actually would challenge me and get me to read books that were unusual. He just wanted me to think differently. And sometimes it was letters from the Australian finance minister to the economics advisor to the prime minister of Britain, England. You know what I mean? Or really, really random. Out of stuff or yes. something on quantum physics or, you know, anyway, I'll come back to that later. And in all of these meetings, he'd get me to meet interesting people. And one of them was Brian Johnson. Brian actually made us an offer for Carrara. He said, I'll give you a couple of million bucks for it. And uh, I didn't even know anything about it. I was the exploration manager. Like, didn't even know it was there. (laughs) 
Right. Right. And it was this great big um, mountain there. It turns out that Brodie Hall, a massive champion of the School of Mines, and Lady Jean Brodie Hall, so influential and helpful to me. So Brodie Hall had actually done a feasibility study on this thing in the 60s. And it was just sitting there on open file. So we then went and had a look at the open file data at the GL survey. And then the core was available in the GL survey courtyard. So we did, a, we did modern processing on the core and then just looked at the holes that Western Mining had already drilled and there was a multi-billion tonne deposit there. And that's it. Goodness me. And then it was just a case of drilling it out, doing all the test work, all the permitting, finding the water, finding the electricity, finding the partner, the offtake, all of that sort of stuff. And Dave and George Jones came in and, and then the rest is history. Dave Southam came in and did a bunch of great stuff. So I had left probably just as that was kicking off. Yes. I had this, I had, because this book, I've got to tell you, this gets back to one of these books. McSweeney gave me this book called The Alchemist. Right. And the combination of reading The Alchemist and understanding the Obi-Wan Kenobi effect basically made me realise it was time to go. Interesting. But Carrara being an iron yeah, ore project. to be huge. Yeah, yeah. Yep. But did, did that sort of start you in thinking iron ore? Because previously you were gold. No, 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 it didn't. So geology, for some people, it's about picking up a tenement yes. and saying, is there gold here? No, nah, okay, move on to the next one. But for other people, and I'm trying to be one of these, okay, here's a tenement, here's a region, what's there? What have we got on this tenement that I can create value for shareholders and do something great for the community? Yes. And that's where you look. And that's where we, and then Atlas, Atlas Gold. But we had an oil and gas prospect. We had a uranium prospect. We had copper. We had manganese. We had gold, base metals. We had a sulfur prospect. And we had an iron ore prospect, all in Atlas. And we basically tasked ourselves in the IPO to go hard at everything to find out what was going to work and then pretty much strip back everything that we thought was low priority and just pin areas back on whatever was going to be the best. And it turned out to be the iron ore. So just for the listeners, to take a step back, David departed Jindawi Metals to go on to become the founding managing director of Atlas Iron in 2004, led the IPO, acquisition, funding, discovery and development of multiple mining operations, which then, as we said earlier, became one of Australia's largest companies by market capitalisation. It's interesting you say you went back and then stripped it all back and then out came the iron ore. Tell us the pathway then. Because now you've, so Fortescue are at 2003, kicking off, they're in full flight. Yep. Did Twiggy have a role to play with your endeavours with Atlas in early stages? Have you, have you heard something, have you? No, no. Okay, well, he made us an offer for the Pardue project. I think it was, no, it wasn't Twiggy himself, but he had this guy running around acquiring stuff. And we got an offer of, I think it was 150000 bucks for the Pardue tenement. And it was, it was quite a, a high-profile proposal, really, because Fortescue were the next big thing. They were huge at that time. That's why I ask. It's, yeah. It sort of coincided. Andrew Forrest was becoming the third force in Ireland. Yeah, and the, we had the, the guys at Murchison Metals were cranking up in the Midwest as well. And Brian Johnson and the guys at Mount Gimson, Luke Tonkin and those guys were, having, were, were sort of getting moving along there. So there was a little bit of a hum. There was all sorts of rail access, debate, noise, and all sorts of things going on. And we got this offer and everyone on my board said, do the deal, take the money and then use that to create a bit of liquidity in the stock and then success. So for them at that time, not all of them, Rick Revelins was fantastic 
Actually, no, the board were open-minded. It was a few of the biggest shareholders behind the, the board. Dennis O'Mara was a big shareholder at the time. He was neutral to it, always a good supporter of mine. Another amazing bloke, Dennis O'Mara. And I was able to convince them to not do the deal with Twiggy. Right. And the rest is history. So it just grew from there. Yeah. yeah. And then with McSweeney at Jindalby, I, I did my first deal with a fellow called Stan McDonald. And I didn't realise this until many years later that one of the reasons why Stan McDonald did the deal with me is that we met on a park bench in Kings Park to negotiate this over a cup of coffee and it started to rain. And while it was raining, I gave him my Jindalby jacket to wear in the rain. Yes. And I said, you keep it. And that was one of the things which he's since told me, tipped him over the edge that I was a decent bloke and worth dealing with. And we did the deal. So all of these sorts of personal nuances and yes. being a decent person and counts in doing deals. So we then went on and did about 50 acquisitions across the Pilbara because it was either us or FMG. It was almost like a race. Yeah. So, so he had a, a couple of years head start on us, but then we were able to come in to a whole new province of iron ore prospectivity and consolidate that when a lot of the majors had stepped over it and gone down to the central Pilbara. So we consolidated everything that we were after north of the central Pilbara, yeah. So really you started out with a company that's got a $9 million sort of style company with yeah. one employee, yep. which has gone on to become a $3 billion company. It's it was an amazing journey. It's a, so much fun. Yes. So much fun. 2012, iron ore price starts to decline. Yep. Let's talk about that. How did you find that? I mean, it's well documented. That was where Fortescue also had, had debt that they had to cover. It was a tough time in the industry because it's, the iron ore price was starting to move. How did you go with Atlas in this period? A, that's a huge question, right? Yeah. So the short answer is, you know, I slept like a baby. I woke up crying every two hours, right? Yeah. It was sort of, it was quite intense through a lot of that. There's also a few patches in the lead up to that where the price had corrected and come right back. Yes. And the business had positioned itself believing the price was going to bounce back up. And it did. Okay. So the price had previously come back from 140 back to say 70. And then it went back up to 110. So our bets were right. Right. But then when it came back, ultimately all the way to $37, and we were losing $20 million a month, and we only had $20 million in the bank. We owed $500 million. We had a few thousand people employed. It took on a whole new meaning. Yeah. Emotionally? Everything. Everything. Ev like everything. Everything. And then we also had competitors looking to take all sorts of corporate advantage. Yes. Some shareholders, some of our contractors. Conduct was pretty awful. Our customers... We had a ship that got stolen, a shipload of iron ore. Who steals a shipload of iron ore? We lost three. You lost three we lost ships? Three, three shipments of iron ore went missing. Two of them, we ended up just getting paid out on insurance. This is an interesting one. Mark Hancock, our CFO, was talking to the customer. There was an intermediary customer who owned the shipping company. I won't name names. And Mark said, oh, we just thought we'd let you know that our end-user customer has turned up at the port to get the ore and it's gone. And we apologise for any inconvenience, <laughs> right? And, the, and the, ore, the ship turned up, there was the no ship, ore The it. ore was taken off and when it went off the ship, it just was, it's just vanished. It va vanished. And that's, imagine filling up Optus Stadium about 10 metres high with ore 
and you thought it was there and a fortnight later it's gone and you don't know where it is. It was that's how much ore it was. Any, anyway, this the guy on the other end of the phone Mark was talking to, he said, no, no, okay, I understand from your perspective you guys don't have anything to worry about, but those people who took the ore, they have something to worry about. <laughs> so he, he said, and ultimately they found it. I don't know how they found it. So it was two of our end users who actually went and found the ore. Another one refused to go looking for it and sued us, and they very cleverly drove the litigation process through the shipping courts faster than we can drive it through the Chinese litigation courts. Right. And we had to settle that you know, during the Atlas restructure. So there was a whole bunch of things happening in the background which were quite complicated and difficult. Yes. But everyone was working together. Everyone at Atlas was so good and so strong, and it was just wonderful to be a part of. I mean, you did restructure it and then decided, right, well, I've got through that period. You're clearly exhausted at the end of it. Devastated. Yep. Yep. Tough time. Yep. Tough yep. time. But when you look back now and you see Hancock Prospecting picked it up in 2018? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. But you look back, incredible learning experience. Oh. What are some of the takeaways? When you come back and if you sit in a helicopter now, David, and you look at that Atlas Iron experience, it's phenomenal. Just doing the research and the homework around what, what actually the trajectory and then the change in price and the impacts. Have you digested it now? Actually, this is like as we're talking about it now, this is probably the most favourably that I've thought about it <laughs> because there were bits in it which well, I won't go into some of the detail in the background. There's some pretty brutal conduct by some stakeholders right. through the process. You know, not everyone was like Jeff Baker and the guys at Macca who basically said, you know, I remember there was this meeting we had where Jeff Baker, chairman of Macca, was in the room and a couple of our other contractors and the lenders' representatives were there. And the lenders basically said, we don't know why you're working so hard to save Atlas. Why are you giving up so much to save this company? Because we want the company to go into receivership. We want to end up owning the asset 100% and not sharing any of the cash with the unsecured creditors or the shareholders. Like, basically, they wanted us to go to it. And we just refused to go under. Yes. And Jeff Baker, he had a, at that stage, he had a bit of a dicky eye and it was weeping. And it sort of looked a little bit like he was getting emotional, but he wasn't. And he said to this guy, he said, have a look at him. Have a look at these guys. They're exhausted. Their eyes are hanging out of their heads. They've given absolutely every ounce of sweat and blood and tears to save this company. Why wouldn't you get on board and work with them to make it happen? Yeah. You know? Pretty inspiring. And Jeff Baker is amazing. So that's one of the reasons when he and picked up the phone and asked me to think about joining Macca, I said, of course. Yeah. There's so much in it to learn. You know, people like Jeremy Sinclair, given half a chance, all people like Jeremy want to do and the people that work with them is to do the best job that they can. Yeah. It's not so much about getting in there and doing a lot of the stuff yourself. It's about sitting around the table with them and, and, and knowing you've got the right people there and saying, what's the best way through this? And when can we do it by? And how can we manage the risk to ensure that we get there by that date? Yes. Like Tony Walsh, like what an amazing machine. So from a governance perspective and equity markets and, you know, so tough doing all of that. And he left independence to come back with me and go back into Atlas and risk everything to make it work. Cheryl Edwards, yes. the ex-attorney general, joined us as the chair yes. in the middle of the restructure. Like who would do that? 
faced with insolvency. Massive, courageous woman. So much respect for her. Jeff Dowling, he was head of audit and risk. He was on the board. Yes. Other directors had resigned because it was getting a bit hot. Jeff sat next to me one day and said, David, I will stay with you and we will fight until the end, whatever it is. You know, and it was tough. Yeah. We were doing cash flow forecasts and solvency testing on a weekly basis. Weekly. The end result, you managed to pull it together. <laughs> Every, yeah, everyone I mean, pulled it together. You know, tr- the guys at Hartley's found some clever ways to do deals and Trent and the guys at Lazard and, and there was some massive, you know, there was a bunch of knuckle draggers we brought in from Chicago who were amazing as well. So yeah, it did. It all came together. And the state government kicked in. We got them to reprice port services at Utah. We got royalty concessions out of the mines department. And native title groups who we'd been paying their money the whole way through, even when we made no money, they were still getting millions of dollars a year, as they should. Yes. They offered to be part of the restructure and convert their future royalty payments into equity. And there were Aboriginal people who reached, came out of the cupboard and helped me personally, mentored me personally, gave me some Indigenous experiences, which I just found breathtakingly good for my energy to go back in and start the fight again. So, yeah, we, we got through it, what it must have been like for Sarah and the kids at home, but they kept patching me up and sending me back out and, and giving me everything that I needed at home. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah. God, thanks for sharing this. It's just such a great insight because it gives the listeners a feel for what you've been through in terms of got to Everest, you got to the top and then the journey back down was a little bit tougher and you've come out the other side. Oh, at the top, mate, it was like a hot knife through butter. Like yeah. I met a whole bunch of prime ministers. I shook hands with Joe Biden. I had a cup of tea with the Queen. Like amazing experiences. <laughs> I got an Eisenhower Fellowship. You know, I had dinner with General Colin Powell. It was like amazing things. Yes opened up in front of me. And when I stood down as managing director, we had like $400 million in the bank. We were making sort of $50 million a month. It was just Hollywood. Amazing. Just amazing. And look, we even did a backyard blitz on Port Hedland one day. Did you ever hear about that? No. We shut down almost all of our mining operations, except for care and maintenance staff. We chartered two 717 jets and flew everyone into Port Hedland and renovated a couple of schools old people's home, an Aboriginal community. It was a bit like what Jamie Jury does yes. on Backyard Blitz, yep. but imagine yep. that with 350 mining people, with contractors, with cranes, and project management people, and it was just how many, awesome. How many do you have on the ground? Hundreds. Hundreds. And, well, like, I don't know how many people fit on a 717, two of them, yeah. and people who were up there on site drove into Headland, and we had all sorts of people from the community come out. Oh, about the month. As a pro rata team development day, as a pro rata community investment in the scope of what we were doing, it was meaningful, like it was proper money that we spent fixing these things. But what it did with respect to delivering high performance culture, that was something we learned about during the process is that businesses will work better and do more when you really have a focus on that culture. Yes. You can get a lot done. And I think that ultimately that culture was still there when we hit the rocks. Yeah, which that, held it together. And it was one of the things that held it together. Yeah. yeah. David, I know you don't like talking about it, about your achievements. I can tell by your body language. But during this period, you were awarded some quite significant awards. In 08, Australia's Best Mining Executive by Resource Stocks Magazine, Preferred Mining Employer in WA, 
in 2008, Digger of the Year, Australia's Best Performing Mining Company in 2009, First Among Equals for WA's Best Performing Business Person under 40. I found this one quite interesting, a national winner of the EY Australian Entrepreneur of the Year in the listed company category, inaugural winner of the Governor's Award for Giving, and it probably stems back to what you were just talking about a little bit there with Atlas. But Malcolm McCusk was the governor of the time. Yeah. And I was looking at the information that came out about the evening when you were awarded the Governor's Award for Giving. And, and I just found this very interesting that Malcolm McCusker said at the time, whilst there is a number of significant donors in WA who deserve recognition for their wonderful work, the recipient of the inaugural Governor's Award for Giving has been selected because of a demonstrated hands-on commitment to charitable causes and leading by example. This outstanding recipient is a shining example of a business leader running a dynamic company, yet still finding time to give as an individual, to develop a corporate giving strategy, and to get out of the community and encourage others to do the same. That's pretty powerful stuff. You mentioned the Eisenhower Multination Fellowship in 2013. You then went on to get WA Business Leader of the Year in 14 and were made Western Australian or awarded or appointed. Western Australian of the Year in 2014. 2016, Turnaround Management Association of Australia, Turnaround of the Year, and then in 2016, Australian Law Magazine Restructuring Deal of the Year. Cap all that off. In 2018, after your time with Atlas, you're admitted as a general member of the Order of Australia for significant service to the mining sector through a range of roles to higher education, to philanthropy, and to the community. So congratulations. Seriously, pretty impressive. Thanks, Tim. I do reiterate for the listener, David's not a big deal on these things, but I think it's worth highlighting. Thanks for sharing that about Atlas. I just want to move into now your current roles and a little bit about what you're doing. And it's very interesting. There's particular roles that you're in at the moment which relate to mining. You're independent non-exec chair for Red Dirt Metals, which is lithium. Yep non-exec director for MACA, which is one of Australia's largest mining contractors. Yep. Chair of Battery Minerals. Yep. And independent non-exec chair for Australian Remote Operations in Space and on Earth. Just give us a little bit of insight into where you're seeing mining at this point in terms of the metals that you're in touch with in terms of lithium, the battery mineral space. And then where you see yourself in terms of these roles and, and where WA might fit as well. I'm just really interested in your views. So to get to this point, it's not just about being a geologist. All, all of those other people who I worked with in those other organisations, whether it was Cheryl Edwards or Malcolm McCusker, all those key relations, gave me an opportunity at Murdoch University to sort of develop relationships in government and out of government. Right. So from a rose perspective, which is about the resources sector, the minerals, the capability, and space. I sort of have a bit of a bridge there, so I'm able to sort of engage with the government in a way that I have in those other roles and the resource sector and the space sector that's, that's come after. So Western Australia is in enormously advantageous position around yes. all of these things. From a personal, when you sort of think about what's your personal objective through the course of your life, you know, it, it's about being a great dad and, and husband and friend, but I also want to do things to help other people achieve, achieve high impact and have a few laughs 
have a good time while I'm doing it. That's kind of, that's the David Flanagan. That's a mantra. Thing. That's the mantra, right? Yeah, yeah. And I got approached by someone to have a look at this space thing. My first response was, what do I know about space? So look, I, now nah, maybe I'm not the right person, but then I had a look at it a little bit more closely and it actually fits exactly with what I want to do and where I want to be. It turns out that there's no greater path to prosperity for a nation than investing in the space sector. And what do you base that on? So NASA are quite good at compiling data on the impact of the money that they spend and where it goes. Yes. And there's a multiplier of the money that they invest in those industries. And it sits somewhere between 7 and 70 as the multiplier. So each year at the moment, the NASA budget is 26 to $28 billion US. Okay. And what I'm saying is that that money bounces around that economy between 7 and 70 times. Okay. That's pretty significant. So even if you only achieved 10 times. Yeah. I would like to think that for every $1 that gets spent in the space industry by a federal government, that that delivers $3 to schools, hospitals, social infrastructure. Yes. And what it also does is it builds a capability in a population to take advantages of opportunities and builds optimism that they might not have seen before. And we've already been involved in launching a satellite that was manufactured here in Perth, and we've done a feasibility study on, on building a lunar rover built entirely in Australia, and we're currently bidding to be the provider of that lunar rover service on the moon mission in 2026. Which is Artemis. Yep. Yeah, yep. And it seems to me to be all stemming back to automation, AI. How does it all tie in together with regards to then looking at our linkage between resource and space? Yeah, it is, it is about that, but partly it's about the heritage that we've got in automation. Right. So we've been operating remote control boggers underground in mining in Australia for nearly 70 years. And right. is that globally a leader by far? It absolutely is. Because so, what happens is, first couple of years, it was kind of just pretty agricultural, and then it started to get professional. Yes. And over the course of the last 50 years, it's become very reliable. And there's a lot of history and there's a lot of making mistakes and then fixing them. And that heritage builds reliability. And that reliability is a key component of anything that you do in space because you can't send a fitter out to fix it. No. Okay, so the international space sector really values the heritage that we have in automation. Yes. It really values what we've already achieved in deploying automation and robots into the mining sector. It values our ability to work remotely in harsh environments. And very importantly, the space sector really values the way that we manage data over distances and the way that we can package data and then unpackage data and use it to improve the way that we run things. Because it turns out that in the future, everything's going to be run in space pretty much in automation. Yes. Really, it's, you go to a hostile environment, you'll do it first with a robot. Okay, so there's a natural opportunity there. But NASA didn't just want the Australian mining sector in the space industry for our experience in automation. NASA have been trying to engage with the global resource sector for a while and not got much traction. Right. There's a type of problem-solving thinking called systems engineering. 
Now, in its simplest form, a systems engineer in the context of space is someone who has a very practical understanding of engineering, but also all of the other science that goes around a process, so that including computing and code writing and all sorts of other things and process itself, and they seek to rebuild the process from the bottom up to solve a problem yes. in every aspect. And it turns out that that's not too far from the style of thinking that a mining engineer applies to solving a problem in a mine. So a mining engineer is not a civil engineer. They're not an electrical engineer, but they're a bit of every, they're, all, they're a mechanical engineer or electrical they're engineer. They're a jack of all trades. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a type of systems thinking. So there's a type of creativity and behind that there's a weight of capital. Yes. And there's a lot of solutions we're looking for in mining about reducing footprint, increasing safety, increasing reliability, absolutely taking our carbon footprint of everything we do through the floor. It's got to be light. It's got to be strong. In fact, it's possibly got to be smaller. It's got to be very efficient for data. So all of these things are very strongly aligned. Now then you roll the next bit of it in. Space industry has a lot of tech and that tech's tough and it can do all sorts of things. Sometimes it's just a sensor that measures vibration. Yes. Now that measurement of vibration can save and make a mining company a lot of money because if you've got a sensor that sits on a really important electric motor in a processing plant, when that motor starts moving in a way that you don't want it to be moving, yep. it can be an indication of a pending failure. It's an so alarm. You, it's an alarm. Yep. So that's one example. So there's all sorts of sensors and the way that you integrate what those sensors produce to create a safety outcome or a cash flow outcome or a profit outcome, reliability outcome, all of that sort of stuff, not to mention all sorting opportunities in lithium projects. So all of these things are real and live. There's an opportunity for Australian mining companies to participate in moon missions as well. And it's space missions. So one of the crazy ideas that's bounced around, maybe it's not that crazy, is to send a robot up, land it on an asteroid, hollow out the centre of it, and build the centre out of it and make it into a, an interplanetary spaceship. Wow. But at the moment, a rose is not about going up to the moon and, and mining. You no. Know, no. At best, it's about going up to the moon, finding some ice, and converting the ice into oxygen and hydrogen and using the hydrogen to fuel emission to Mars. Yes. That's the plan. I was listening to a, uh, a conversation with Elon Musk about that the other day and how they're trying to take SpaceX through to Mars as an opportunity. He mentioned that that is a large reason as to why that is to diversify the human race and give them opportunity to live on another planet should there be any problem here on Earth. Interesting thought process around that and where SpaceX is taking it. Could you see... The resource technology that's coming and, and understanding and insight that's coming out of WA, whilst it's being a part of NASA, is it also being looked at by the likes of SpaceX? And is it being adopted as universally best practice in the resource space that they can leverage off that technology and that expertise and understanding and put it into play? I think we're at the beginning of that process. Yes. I do know that Elon Musk is engaging with lots of mining companies in North America. Yes. He absolutely is doing that. He's launching a lot of satellites. So yes, he's, he's supporting the International Space Station, but he's putting a lot of satellites up there and Starlink is part of that as well. So there are going to be a lot of mining customers for Starlink. There's also a lot of mining companies are going to be putting up their own satellites. Right. You know, you can put up a satellite now for as little as $60,000. 
the first one that we put up was three and a half million that was made here in Perth, but it comes down a lot the more you put up. So it's going to get cheaper to do that. And these are not satellites that are then there forever. These are low earth orbit satellites, which basically crash and burn up in the atmosphere after two or three years. Right. There's a lot of market there for companies to access satellite data to make their operations better Yes. in so many respects. So are we going to see Australian mining technology being deployed for exploring space? Almost certainly over time, almost certainly. And it's yep. not just NASA though, it's whoever comes to the fore, whether it be Elon Musk or whoever, yep. we are at the front. Yeah, but with Elon Musk, 97% or thereabouts of the money that he's deployed in pursuing space has been on a fee-for-service basis with NASA. So he's, you know, amazingly creative and he's revolutionised everything that he's done, but he's, there's a significant partnership with NASA there. Yes, right. Yep. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you are finding this extremely exciting? It is, and yeah. there's, there's all sorts of other things which will spin out of it. Like, for example, remote operations capability is currently perceived as being something that's for the big boys. Yes. So I would actually now argue that you should be able to acquire remote operations capability on a fee-for-service for for $10,000, $20,000 a month for a mining company. And it doesn't mean everything's automated, but it means that you've got access to information that's going to add value to your organisation in real time. What What sort of things, David, would you say would be accessible in that frame? So you might be able to know the condition of key components of your plant and equipment. Yes. Your mobile fleet. You might have a way of engaging with your staff real time wherever they are, your supply chain. So at Atlas, we had the biggest road train fleet in the world. We had 192 50-odd metre road trains running around, supplied to us by a couple of contractors. There was a monitoring system for all of those trucks in real time that we could put up on the board and show where they all were and what everyone had and who was going where and all sorts of diagnostics on the trucks. But imagine if you could integrate that with your stockpile management yes. so that you could optimise the movement of your product and then you integrate that with your stockpile in the port. And, you, and this is what Roy Hill and Rio Tinto and BHP and FMG are doing, but they've had to invest a large amount of money to get that. But what if someone could come along like a services provider and provide that for you on a fee-for-service? Yeah. There are groups out there who I think are going to be doing that and it's going to make life safer and more productive. Fascinating, fascinating. If we could just move to these metals that are oh, in yep, such yep, demand. Yep. Okay, let's just talk about the ones you're involved in. Let's start with lithium, for example. Yep. Yeah, how are you seeing the, the field opportunity-wise? It's, it's amazing, isn't it? It's just, <laughs> it is just... Um, you're in the heart of it. And so... Oh, it's, yeah, it's white hot, yep. that demand. And at the moment, you've got your normal market type response where people want to buy a product and that's forcing it up and and you think that okay well that's going to stimulate a whole bunch of supply which then should cause some sort of correction in price over time but what's also happening is you've got all of these governments making policy decisions over and above normal market yes response right so typically you'd think, well, lithium price will go up when it's going to make batteries, which are going to make sense for people to buy on a, on a cost-effective basis. But actually you've now got government saying, no, you're going to have lithium batteries in all of your cars by this date. So they actually, it's like a law has been passed. You've got to go and own this yeah, stuff. Yeah. So that's a, like, Fill your what? Boots. <laughs> it, it is. So it, it is. We're seeing massive opportunity in that 
for Western Australia because out of the 103 critical minerals, we've got 92. Okay, so I think that the opportunity's there for us to take if everyone comes together and decides that's what they want to do. David, coming back to your philosophy around taking a, an exploration license, which you dedicated possibly for the prospect of gold, you're saying, right, well, instead of taking that approach, I'm going to look at every possible angle of this license and then work out what it has and how we can make the best of it. How far do you think the critical elements are going across the state? You say we've got 92 of the 103 critical minerals available. It, the expanse of where they lie is phenomenal. Yeah, so it's, it's so a really each, big, bigger, each, bigger than Texas. It's, yep. yeah, and each EL is going to possibly contain something or somewhat an element of some degree of value which could be classed as critical. Yep. Is that the level it's going to go to? Do you think everything will be reworked over in terms of the opportunity set? It's a good question. So I think that there'll be some places where it's a bit obvious. Yeah. And there's a data set where you can just go to that data set and query it for lithium or whatever it is. It's a bit like what they did in Cambalda at St. Ives. It was all about nickel and they went back and they assayed the core and they found gold. Yes. So there'll be some areas where it's quite straightforward and then you can use some of the same infrastructure and convert it from nickel to gold, right? There will be a bit of that. Like at Wajina, where Atlas found the iron ore next to the tantalum mine. And we ran it as an iron ore mine for two weeks and then as a tantalum mine for two weeks through the same processing plant on a roster. So I think there could very well be more of that sort of thing out there. Yes. There'll be more deposits where there are byproducts. But I don't think that there will be a, enough people and enough money to literally go and sort of like just smash it in sort of 12, 18 months, two years. It's, yeah. it's going to take time because you've got to find the prospects when it comes to raw exploration of the other commodities. You've got to then convince people that the forward curve on the commodity price is going to be good enough to throw money in because historically these fruity minerals haven't worked. Right. Like vanadium has been extremely difficult. Now there's been a shift because of all these technologies, which might mean that it's changed forever. Yes. But there's still going to be some people out there who are a bit careful. You know, there's plenty of brokers out there who have had their fingers burned on, on some of these sorts of things before. So my guess is that it'll start with those assets that are closer to infrastructure, and, and Red Dirt and, and Mount Ida is one of those. Yes, It's where there's a lithium asset on a granted mining lease next to an existing mine, which is capable of being pushed into production really quickly. And that's what it's attracted me to that. Yes. And think that these mineralized systems, like a bit of a, a geology 101 lesson here, is a, a lot of the mineralized systems, no matter what mineral they are, the minerals are concentrated from crustal leverage, average low levels, up to a higher grade because of faults, some sort of structure. Now, it turns out that these structures don't just concentrate one type of mineral. They can concentrate all sorts of minerals and there can be other subordinate structures which might be rich in one mineral and not in other, but all be related. So those systems where you've got really big, long-lived, deep crustal faults and then subordinate faults in rocks that have got a global reputation for producing different types of minerals, they will. So I would argue that next to the major mining centres for gold, yes. you're going to find major mining centres over time for other commodities because of those deep plumbing systems which have brought the minerals to bear. 
Gosh, coming back to it, it's so exciting when you think about the opportunity set for WA. Yes. Yeah, so, so then how do you then maximise that opportunity? Yeah, yeah. So part of it's going to come through capital markets, normal capital markets. So tradition, things that are sort of close to traditional are going to attract normal types of funding opportunities. But things which are non-traditional are going to take a little bit more effort because they're competing with the supply of commodities from other countries where they are supported by a non-traditional capital market solution like a state-owned entity. Right. So at the moment, all these rare earths are produced and purified in China where they're subsidised. They're subsidised by not having an environmental you know, regulatory framework that compares to us. They're subsidised by getting access to cheaper labour. They're subsidised by getting access to free or cheap money. So if we don't have that, how are we going to diversify our downstream capability to compete so that we're not... Because at the moment, we absolutely rely on China for a 100% supply of critical minerals, particularly for electronics. Okay? So there's not a mobile phone in Australia that will work without supply of Chinese processed minerals. There's not a battery, there's not a computer, there's not a car that'll start. There's not... I actually would argue that there's also... All of the electronic defence weaponry that we've got relies on supply of minerals from China. So, we so from a geopolitical <laughs> point of view, I'm not saying we're going to go to war with China, but there's all sorts of things that they can do to restrict our supply to over time if we don't do something about it. It sounds like we've got a supply requirement to diversify a little yeah, bit. And, and governments listening, they're running a bunch of reviews, and, and AUKUS has a bit to do with this as well, with the North Americans. There are conversations ongoing on how to ensure that we can get access to those critical minerals over time. Yes. And there are capital market solutions. There are systems thinking type solutions you can deploy to make sure this all happens. And part of it is getting Australians to give the government a mandate to go and do it and accepting that if we want to have downstream processing here, we've got to have factories. Yeah. And we're going to need to create districts where we're going to to have an environmental impact, we're going to create a footprint. There's going to be some smoke go up a smokestack. If you want to have a mobile phone, you need a smokestack. If you want to drive an electric car, you need... So there's, you have to crack a few eggs if you make an omelette. Minerals don't come from the mineral shop. They come from a hole in the ground. Yep. And chemicals that make cars and phones come out of a processing plant. They're not all beautiful, but we need them. So there's a few tough decisions to be made around this area before it really is able to be leveraged to the extent that it could possibly oh, get Oh, massive. To, you know, you've yeah. got the CEO of one of the world's biggest car manufacturers came out last year and said he was going to deliver all the minerals he needed for the future of his car manufacturing without having to start a mine. But what is he thinking? Where's the, he's going to go buy minerals from the mineral shop? They come from a hole in the ground, right? And they get processed in a processing facility and they crack eggs when you're doing that. So I think that we can be smart about it. We can minimise our footprint. We can limit our environmental impact massively. Yes. But someone's got to be prepared to have it in your backyard. Yeah, yeah. And that's the question. Yeah. I had some rapid-fire questions for you, but some of them we've covered. One of the questions I had, though, for you was, got a a world that was really going towards globalisation. It was going in leaps and bounds to become as one and interact and interconnect. But now we see there's almost a, a segregation going on over time. And you can see with where we're sitting in Australia, opportunity sets come in terms of whether that's agriculture as we're seeing for food or whether it's the minerals that we produce. I'm just wondering whether you see these things 
progressing forward in terms of an opportunity for Australia to grow bigger and stronger and the Australian dollar to go up and become a, a powerhouse in essence on the back of what we've got or do we maintain our status quo? So I think that that's a function of Australians. Yes. So I think that if we give our leaders a mandate or demand of them to take us in a certain direction, then the leaders kind of have a mandate to do the things to get us there. And if we get the right one or two or three or team of leaders in place, then they'll do it. I think that there's massive opportunity to do more than just, you know, dig stuff up and ship it overseas. Yes. I think that there's massive opportunity for wealth creation and prosperity in Australia. There's massive opportunity for us to contribute to the whole world in so many aspects. One of the things that they've got down at Murdoch is the Phenome Centre. Say, prob- say that there's, again. there's a Phenome Centre right. at Murdoch. You might go, well, what's that? Basically, there's a study that's being undertaken there, one of six in the world, where they can use precision medicine to understand you and your phenome, so you're the, the intersection between your genetics and your lifestyle up to now, and then give you treatments that are perfectly catered for you, right? As part of that same technology that they've got there, they can explore the natural environment to understand what's available in plants and animals around us to cure all sorts of diseases that are identified in your phenome. Wow. So there's that, and, you know, and, and not to mention what we can do for the space industry, but what we do for the space industry, it's not so much about what happens in space. It's about what happens in Earth, on yes. Earth. So if you decide we're going to focus on space exploration and the federal government, you know, over the next five years agrees to put $10 billion a year into it, like a small part of the national budget, what will end up happening is we'll end up with thousands and thousands of systems engineers being produced in schools and universities. Yes. And they are the smartest problem solvers there are. They are the people who you stick in a room who don't, not just about building a bridge from one place to another, but they're there to solve society's problems. On my Eisenhower Fellowship, I went to the US and spent a couple of months initially looking at some of the biggest challenges facing North America and the world. And then towards the end of my fellowship, I got stuck in a room at the Grand Canyon. It's a pretty cool place. And there was me and 19 other people. And one of them recently passed away, unfortunately. But Salvatore Econese, he was a very interesting guy. He had an artificial intelligence child, lived on a computer. So these people in this room, there was a Taiwanese princess, there was a Russian infrastructure executive, there was a a politician out of New Zealand, there was a guy who led a diversity movement funded by that author who wrote The Dragon Tattoo, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. All all these, there was an education minister out of Finland, all these amazing people in this room, really diverse group of people. And where I'm getting to is that I saw these people in this room engage in a productive, like hard, it it wasn't really soft, it was hard engagement about solving problems. And it filled me with more confidence that the future was bright than I'd ever had before. So whilst there's all these massive challenges coming at us from everywhere, I'm convinced that smart people, given a chance, will want to do great things. And will win. And And they will. Yep. Up until that point, I, just the data I'd seen on, in, on the environment, global warming and climate change, I was feeling so sad and devastated 
like the US, there's these super fun sites in the US, these environmental, it's terrible things over there. But there's a way through it. And it may well be that automation in mining is a way to send an automated mining fleet or civils fleet into an area without people and just clean it up. Yep. And then in 10 years' time, because it, it's actually fixed. But you just have to start. So, And there are social challenges. You know, the, the Navajo Nation in North America is actually on a path at solving a whole bunch of social issues that those Indigenous people have faced that ours are facing. So there's ways to integrate between the two and to learn from things and, and for us to share learnings and to have all sorts of wonderful experiences. But it's, it, you know, it could get tougher before it gets easier. Yeah, sure. Well, that's really interesting. And rather than reinvent the wheel, start to collaborate. Yes. So, uh, so I'm optimistic about the future and yeah. all of these things for Australia. But I think that it'll happen faster if people sort of demand it of our leadership. Yes. It's been a fascinating, fascinating chat. And for the listener, the body language that David's throwing over is just the excitement, the enthusiasm, his love of what he's done and his understanding is just absolutely amazing. I just want to quickly touch back, and this is a really, it's a really crucial question because I think a lot of people really get a lot out of it. In your life, and you touched on it earlier, balancing work and home. You've been able to do it. You've clearly had some times when it's been harder than others. And I feel that during life, you've been able to manage it pretty well. But get any insights there for the listener? Yeah, it's very difficult on a day-to-day basis or on a week-to-week basis to actually have work-life balance. Yes. So before we went and did Atlas, before I sort of quit my job working for Dave McSweeney after reading Alchemist and having the Obi-Wan Kenobi effect hit me between the eyes. (laughs) Yeah. With the Obi-Wan Kenobi effect, that's you know, when Luke gets told the forces in him yep, yep. and it takes him at here a couple of times before he believes it. And the other one was reading The Alchemist and having a crack. I read these things and I had a chat to Sarah and we had Jack and Grace. Grace was one. You know? She's 18 now. Anyway, I said to Sarah, look, there's this opportunity to go and do this. This is what it all is. And Sarah said, well, we've got to have a go. Yeah. She said, we're young enough that if it goes pear-shaped, we'll recover from it. Yeah. But we just have to have a go. So it's very important to get Sarah's buy-in. Before, so the, before, before you take before, off. Before it, and then over the – and this is something that, like, Cheney said early on when I went to see him to get a little bit of advice on how to try and build a great company. He, he said that you won't have balance over the short term, but you've just got to commit and then deliver to the balance over the longer term. Yes. So it might not work over the course of a month, but you've really got to make sure that you find a way to, to catch up over a six-month period or a three-month period. Yes. And that when you can be there, you are there. Yeah. And we, you know, we, we took the kids up and put them in the dump truck and Grace was sitting on my knee when we signed the first native title agreement. It was cool. Oh, so cool. Special. Yeah. Oh, look, thanks for answering and thanks for sharing. I... I just wanted to finish off by there's so much more to David than than I can go through in terms of conversation, but David has a number of roles that I just want to quickly touch on in terms of his community-minded aspect of his life. And He's been director of the WA Academy of Performing Arts at Edith Cowan University. Yeah, figure that one out. Well, you know, <laughs> you, you look like you're a good actor to me. <laughs> You've got good expression. Commissioner for the Murdoch University, 
First Commission, Committee Member WA 500 Club, Councillor for the WA Leukaemia Foundation Advisory Board, Advisory Board Member for the Curtin Graduate School of Business, Economic Policy Forum Member for the WA Chamber of Commerce and Industry, Director at Youth Focus, Director at Celebrate WA, Patron, as I mentioned earlier, for the Many Rivers Microfinance, Patron for the WA School of Mines Graduates Association, and I mentioned Cal Parron, the fathering project in WA Parks. You really are continuing to keep on this journey of not only progressing what was a career aspiration back in school or when you were at the WA School of Mines where you wanted to provide yourself with roles that would give you an opportunity to lead a company, where you got there. I mean, that's amazing. And what you've been able to achieve. And then the ongoing contribution to community was pretty well spelt out by the governor Malcolm McCusker, when he awarded you that. There's plenty more that I could go through, but I just wanted to say in conclusion, because we could talk for a long time, but you've had an amazing career, but the way you've approached life has been pretty inspirational. I I know people are going to get a lot out of this conversation. Motivation, energy, enthusiasm, and a sense of adventure have all come together to provide what's been a pretty captivating story. And I do believe when people listen to this from all walks of life, they're going to come away with a positive outlook and a really good insight into what it takes to address the goals you have in life, but then also go on and keep contributing. So look, on behalf of us at Euros Hartleys, I want to say thanks a lot for taking the time and sharing with us. No, thanks very much. It's been good fun. Good on you, David. Nice. Thank you. All the best. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian wealth management and diversified financial services company, Euros Hartleys. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast through your podcast host of choice. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please email our fabulous producer, Bridget, on communications at euroshartleys.com or visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com. This podcast has been general information only. Euros Hartleys holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.